Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Rural Spark Podcast. I'm your host, Helen Murphy. So we just got through another federal election, the third one in six years. You may have noticed the distinct rural-urban divide in the outcome of our September 20th vote. While such a split isn't new, we were wondering if it's growing. And is it something that we should be concerned about? What are the risks if that kind of gap continues to grow? Those are among the questions we put to two political scientists who studied the urban-rural vote split in Canada over decades. Our guests on the podcast today are Zach Taylor at the University of Western Ontario and Jack Lucas at the University of Calgary. Good morning, Dr. Taylor and Dr. Lucas, and welcome to the Rural Spark podcast. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. So now we should say, uh, Dr. Taylor, you are joining us from where today? I'm in London, Ontario. I'm a professor at uh, Western University. And uh, Dr. Lucas, you're coming to us from the University of Calgary? That's right. Calgary, Alberta. Wonderful. So we do have some different perspectives, and I know you've collaborated on research in the area we're going to talk about today, which is that rural-urban divide that we see in Canadian elections and and maybe more so in in recent elections. So I'm wondering if, if first, you might tell us just a little bit about your collaborative research that kind of brings you together looking at these things. What is it that you've been working on together? Sure. So what we've done in this project is to come up with a way to measure the urban character, what we call the urbanity of every federal electoral district in Canada, going all the way back to Confederation. And what this allows us to do really for the first time is to track the urban-rural divide in federal voting patterns over the very long term. So it allows us to see which parties do better in urban areas or rural areas and when the urban-rural divide is large or small over the long term. And what we found is that we're in a moment in Canada today where the urban-rural divide in support for the two major parties, the Liberals and Conservatives, is bigger than it's ever been at any point in Canadian history. And did that uh, that trend continue for the most recent election uh, in fall 2021? Yes, looking at the preliminary results from 2021, what we found is that the trend has just continued and, and deepened. The divide was already quite large in 2019, and it's grown even larger in 2021. And was that split always there? Like if we think back to our early elections or, you know, was there a point in history where we really saw that kind of divergence start to take off? You know, the urban-rural split has evolved in really interesting ways through Canadian history. In our analysis, we've identified three main periods where the divide has been especially important. The first was in the immediate aftermath of the First World War, where you had agrarian politics and the Progressive Party play a really important, brief but important role in Canadian politics. And then the second period was the 1950s and 60s, when John Diefenbaker created a new, more prairie-based, more rural, progressive, conservative coalition. And the Liberal Party responded to that by creating a party that was more oriented to highly educated, urban, middle-class professionals. And that really set in motion a lasting urban-rural divide between the two major parties. So it was really at that moment that we see the birth of a persistent urban-rural divide in Canada. And then the third period is, is the one we're living in now, starting in the 90s and early 2000s. The Reform Party built a distinctively rural coalition, and then the new uh, Conservative Party inherited that coalition in time for the 2004 election. And that's where we see the especially stark divide that has persisted right up to today. 
I'm wondering how harmful that kind of trend might be for uh, democracy. Dr. Taylor, how do we see the impact of that? That could be a negative thing. Do we see the main parties, for example, deciding to maybe not really engage in some writings because the divide there is so solidly against them? That particular thing is something that's hard for us to see from our you know, bird's eye view altitude. We don't really have a clear picture of what riding associations are doing, uh, you know, across 338 ridings in Canada. What we can worry about is that it becomes harder and harder for parties to recruit viable candidates when they've been out of power in a particular part of the country for a long time, right? They, they kind of lose their grassroots connections. Riding associations become, you know, more pieces of paper than, than active organizations, it becomes harder to create a pipeline of, of candidate material, maybe coming out of local office, local businesses, local school board office, that kind of thing. And so there's kind of a self-reinforcing dynamic that comes from that, right? Where uh, as parties become durably uncompetitive in certain areas, that reinforces itself and, and makes it harder for them to, to become competitive in the future. So that can make it easy for parties to you know, not, not give up on parts of the country necessarily, but certainly direct their resources to places that they think they can actually win. And so you have kind of no hope candidates uh, put forward in parts of the country where you really don't expect to win. Now, as that division becomes starker, more geographically starker, you know, that gives cause for concern because it means that if, if those, those parts of the country have particular interests, particular desires, aspirations, ways of life, that aren't really finding their way into the, the thinking that a party is doing, that party won't be responsive to those uh, those types of people. And so we've, I guess we've seen that in recent elections too, with you know the prairies not having that kind of representation that they might have had in other elections in the federal liberal government in the cabinet, and that gets to be a challenge, even in forming your cabinet, right, and having the kind of provincial representation that you'd like. Sure, you think of how difficult it is for, for the current Liberal government and, and even going back to uh, the early 80s uh, Trudeau government, Pierre Trudeau government, how difficult it was to have cabinet ministers representing the West and the kind of contortions that they had to go through to uh, appoint senators to cabinet and so on in order to create Western representation beyond uh, Lloyd Axworthy back in the early 80s. So that is probably the starkest uh, example of a regional divide in recent history. And of course, the, the shoe is on the other foot with Stephen Harper government, who had trouble finding cabinet material in Quebec, Newfoundland, after Danny Williams basically shooed the Conservative Party off the island, <laughs> uh, and so on. And we do see, um, you know, we, we Canadians tend to see a lot of international headlines, and uh, we see a lot of those concerns coming out of the last two elections in the United States, and, and maybe that trend's been going on longer as well. And some of those impacts, you know, on um, political instability even, and, uh, and social unrest. And in the UK, of course, with the Brexit vote, we see a big uh, rural-urban divide. How does Canada's divide compare to what we see in those countries with, you know, we're pretty familiar with what happens there too? We don't have an apples to apples comparison, though I can certainly share that Jack and I are working on an ex extension of the project where we're going to do a very similar type of analysis on the UK, Australia, and uh, the United States Congress. I mean, in the United States, things get a bit more complicated because, of course, you have the separation of powers, a separately elected president elected through this thing called the Electoral College, which adds a whole other mechanism uh, to the entire 
process and Congress is kind of in its its own ballgame where the states get to draw the boundaries, right, for congressional districts. A very different system than Canada, but one that really opens it up to even even greater division, I think. Now, what, of course, we, we have seen going back decades and really reinforced in the past decade in the United States is a very, very stark divide between cities which are heavily Democrat and rural areas which are heavily Republican and suburban areas which are kind of ambivalent and, and move back and forth. And that has reached the point, I think we can, we, you know, many would agree that there's really two, two worlds uh, in the United States, two media worlds, people who don't really inhabit any kind of shared reality. And that's really dangerous. I think in the UK, something a bit different is happening. You do see quite remarkably how the Labour Party has had its historic base in kind of uh, rural, northern, peripheral, uh, natural resource areas, and also in the Celtic fringe in, in Scotland and Wales have, have its legs cut out from under it, both with uh, nationalist parties in Scotland and Wales basically taking over the Labour vote, but also these deindustrialized areas in peripheral parts of England turning away from the Labour Party and uh, the Conservatives kind of scooping them up in a new populist coalition that, that is squarely uh, uh, anti-urban and anti-metropolitan. Right. And you mentioned there, Dr. Taylor, the, the suburbs that can kind of, you know, maybe go either way in, in the Canadian experience. Is that what we're seeing increasingly being the battleground is like, you know, the suburban uh, GTA area, for example, maybe similarly in the Montreal and Quebec areas? Why do you brought that up? This is something that we talk about a lot when we talk about our, our urban rural continuum and putting that to work in our in the kind of work that we're doing. I think it's a mistake to view suburban as a kind of midpoint or way station between urban and rural. I think that it captures something different. It captures more of a lifestyle and more of a privatistic lifestyle. Generally, low density near a metropolitan area, more car dependent, uh, more people living in living in, in uh, detached housing, the ability to kind of consume things, you know, within the household rather than, you know, maybe being involved in more collective consumption, like someone living in a high density uh, inner city area. So I, I see it as coming out of more of a lifestyle thing. And that, that's a lifestyle that can be lived in a rural area or an urban area. It just seems to be more prevalent in a particular subset of, of ridings. So does the suburban GTA seem to matter electorally a lot because it is suburban or does it matter because particular types of people live there, right? These are, this is Canada's major immigrant settlement zone, right? So it may not be entirely about what it means to be suburban. It may be about something else. And a quick shout out now to our sponsor, ExploreNet. Sometimes it seems like rural Canadians get forgotten when we see big developments in technology, like 5G internet. But what's different with ExploreNet is that they focus on providing internet service in rural areas. And they're going to bring the latest 5G-ready technology to rural Canada even before the cities get it. ExploreNet keeps almost 1 million rural Canadians connected to what matters most. And they've been a champion for rural Canada for more than 15 years. Learn more at ExploreNet.com. That's X-P-L-O-R-N-E-T dot com. Interesting. And another thing I'm wondering about is, is there a responsibility or should there be something that our political parties or say our major political parties 
and even our electoral system uh, should be mindful of and looking at in terms of some of the negative impacts that could happen because of the rural, you know, urban divide. Should they be doing anything to try to mitigate those potential impacts? You can think about things that governments could do today that require no major formal changes. And then you could think about bigger picture changes. And people are going to have different views on which of these we ought to pursue. You spoke earlier about the uh, representation from the Liberal Party in the prairies. And I think that's a, a good example of the kinds of things that a, a government can do today to keep these divides very much in mind. So the Conservative Party under Stephen Harper worked pretty hard, in fact, had to convince somebody to cross to their party in order to ensure that it would have a cabinet minister from the heart of a major urban area in Canada. And this has been you know, the, the joke in Alberta, of course, is that if a liberal MP gets elected, they go straight into cabinet because there aren't very many and the liberal party wants some representation in cabinet from the West. And so I think being aware of this divide, being aware that parts of Canada are underrepresented in the caucuses of both of the major parties is an important component of how these parties ought to think about how they assemble cabinets. And it looks like historically that has been the case that Canadian governments at the federal level have kept in mind the need for both urban and rural representation in cabinet. Then you can think about bigger picture stuff, electoral reform. This is something that people in the United States uh, have discussed as a possible path out of the growing urban-rural divide. It's complicated in Canada, not least because of our emphasis on regional representation and local representation that I think few Canadians would want to abandon entirely. And then, of course, baked right into our constitution are rules about the protection of different parts of Canada in terms of representation in the Canadian House of Commons. Those create patterns of overall urban and rural representation, which if we really wanted to uh, open up the can of worms of how to think about urban and rural representation in Canada, perhaps that could be on the table as well. But I'm just trying to give you the full menu from practical all the way through to grand mega constitutional. And does the our, our first past the post system play a role in those uh, considerations? I think it does. I did want to add something else to what Jack said to the previous question, and, and that is that I think that party leaders and prime ministers and political parties are accustomed to viewing the country in regional terms or as a collection of provinces. And so when they're constructing cabinets, prime ministers are trying to make sure that that all provinces are represented. I'm not sure that kind of the, the master criterion is making sure that urban and rural areas are appropriately represented in the correct proportion. But I think that as these issues become more important issues that are salient to this divide, and maybe Jack's going to talk about that in a minute, that that may rival regional representation as, as a criterion in thinking how to build your government. And so, you know, what can parties do? Well, I think there's, you know, in the U.S., in the first Obama campaign, David Axelrod talked about a 50-state strategy. We're not going to give up on any states. And I think that's the way we need to think if you're a party that wants to have representation from across the country, is you need to think about a 10 province and three, three territory strategy. And, and within those, you need to, to think about all the different segments of society in there, urban and rural as well. I mean, one of the things about our analysis, just to emphasize, is that this isn't about urban rural kind of being a proxy for 
regions, right? That some regions are less urban than others, and 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 therefore regionalism really is urban rural. In fact, the pattern that we produce when we did our analysis controls for region, right? So this is urban rural on top of any baseline regional differences. So it's an independent effect. Sorry to jump in there. I'll. Uh, I'll Pass it back to you. Maybe you need to re-ask that question. I was just wondering about it. We we're talking a lot now. Again, it's on the table talking about uh, first past the post. Does that have a role in, in these considerations? I think so. I think Jack has a good take on this. I'll just say briefly that the countries that adopted proportional representation, like a party list style of proportional representation, like Germany, you know, at the end of the 19th century, early 20th century, because the the way that their their representation works is different. They don't really have the urban-rural divide playing out territorially <laughs> kind of the same way that we do, because just because of the way their legislatures work. So that insulates them a bit from these dynamics. These things are, are especially visible and strong in first-past-the-post-electoral systems. Dr. Lucas, did you want to chime in on that one? I don't have much to add to what Zach has already said. I suppose that the, the question of electoral reform as it connects to urban-rural divides really depends a lot on what kinds of systems we're considering. And many of the systems that have been up for discussion in Canadian politics, like an alternative vote or a single transferable vote, are still based on the principle of local ridings of some size uh, sending representatives to the House of Commons. And it's hard to see how those would have dramatic effects on the urban-rural divide in party vote share that we have found in our analysis. If you think uh, about a different system akin to what Zach re was referring to in Germany, a mixed-member proportional type system, where some representatives don't actually come from specific sub-geographic areas, perhaps that could have more obvious effects on the strategies that parties pursue to, to try and gain vote share. But, you know, there's a lot of moving parts in these questions, and I always find it complicated to try and think through what the likely consequences of those kinds of changes might be for something like the urban-rural divide, because, of course, it's not just the rules of the game that change, but the way the players play the game would change were those rules to change. And that means that parties might find a way somehow to continue to pursue vote share in the places where they know they're already strong. It's hard to predict. I also have to keep in mind the way that the boundaries of seats are drawn, right? The way our districts get drawn. You know, in Canada, we have fairly small districts, you know, com certainly compared to American ones, uh, you know, 100, 100, 125, 150,000 people in them. And we also have an independent boundary drawing process at the federal level that, you know, lays out a series of criteria and a, a population size range. And what that means is that we we don't have the kind of politically motivated jiggery pokery, as one of my mentors once said, of drawing these things that you see in the United States, where you have much larger districts in Congress, a million people, and those are drawn in a way that basically edits out mid-sized cities and urban areas and accentuates rural influence. You know, which is why that that a democratic provincial candidate, presidential candidate, and also members of Congress need to rack up huge majorities in their districts just to get elected uh, compared to uh, Republicans. And when we do get back to the Canadian landscape, 
you know, when we look at that divide and how it's been, you know, growing the trend, is there still more that connects us than divides us when we look at the interests of rural and urban voters in Canada? Maybe both of you will chime in on that one. Sure. So I would say absolutely, yes, there's more that unites us than divides us. I've recently been doing some work and and we're working on this as part of our larger project on using data from surveys of Canadians, such as the Canadian election study, to try and understand the specific areas of policy where urban and rural Canadians most disagree with each other. And there's no question that there are some areas where you see real differences, important differences in policy attitudes, environmental policy, carbon taxes, immigration policy. You tend to see that urban and rural Canadians do disagree with one another on the proper policy direction of the country in those areas. But there are many, many areas of agreement as well. If you ask Canadians about the importance of healthcare in Canada, the importance of a strong public education system, equal opportunity, attitudes about the role of women in society, attitudes about the importance of addressing inequality, not to mention kind of foundational principles that we rarely even ask about in surveys, about the rule of law or the importance of individual rights, all of those areas are are areas where you don't see stark geographic patterns of policy attitudes. And I think that's an important thing to keep in mind, even as we do think carefully about this growing urban-rural divide and the areas where we do have substantial policy disagreement. I don't have anything to add to to that, really. One thing that, that we could worry about is the way that some issues uh, can be exploited as as wedges by parties, right? Uh, regardless of what anyone actually thinks about them. That kind of thing is much more likely when we have such broad agreement on many foundational issues uh, uh, across all Canadians or a vast majority of Canadians. It means that the things where you do see divides can be, you know, exceptionally exploitable things like gun control, for example, where maybe the substantive difference probably isn't that great, really, if you put everyone in the room, but it becomes symbolic of something else. Right. And that sounds like a, a you know, the somewhat hopeful note that, that we can wrap up on. And I know that you mentioned earlier that you are going to be broadening your research together, which is terrific in this area, and maybe have some more insights uh, down the road into how we compare globally, like you said, with even looking at Australia and the UK and, and the US. Is that something we'll see maybe unfolding in the next year or two with your work? We're just actually at the beginning of this project. It's called Cities in Canadian Political Development. And this uh, paper that we've released recently is the first paper in what we hope will be a much larger project about urban-rural divides in Canada and Canadian history, and also the Canadian-urban-rural divide in comparative perspective, looking at these other countries that Zach mentioned earlier. Another aspect of it is to look at provinces, of course, as well. Right. right? One of the things that I think is quite interesting is that provinces that we think of as being rural provinces, like the prairies, for example, or even a province like Nova Scotia, actually have very large urban centers that dominate them at the provincial level. And so I think there's a really interesting interaction that we need to think about between provinces that that kind of function as rural representatives at the federal level, but actually have quite complex provincial politics that uh, juxtapose urban and rural uh, opinion in different ways. Well, that's going to be interesting to see uh, how that research shapes up. And and thank you so much for being with us today on this. And if you don't mind, I'd like to touch base with you down the road as that research uh, unfolds and maybe see what other insights uh, we can glean from that. 
Sounds great. great. Be your pleasure. Great. Thanks. And have a great day. Thank yeah, you. You too. And thanks to all of you for joining us this week. The Rural Spark team includes content producer Catherine Murphy and technical producer Tara Seabarth. Music by Jason Shaw. We wish you all the very best for the week ahead in your part of rural Canada.